I like words. I guess you could say I'm kind of a word guy. Uh, probably figured that out because I'm a preacher. I work with words. Uh, the Lord of my life is the living word. So yeah, I have a real connection to words. I've got, I've got the Scrabble app on my phone and on my iPad. So I really like words. Now, you may not have known, there is an event each year that is kind of like the Oscars for words. Kind of that red carpet moment for words as various organizations like the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, uh, like the Oxford uh, Dictionary, and the American Dialect Society, they, they select their word of the year. So back in 2015, according to dictionary.com, the word of the year was... I need a drum roll, but we can't do that. It's Church Christ, right? Um, imagine a drum roll. The word of the year was identity. And as I saw that, I thought... They must be reading the same headlines that we're reading, right? I mean, you talk about a word that is in the middle of culture wars right now. It would be that word identity. I mean, gender identity is in the middle of disputes in our, in our public schools, in our court system, in our political system. Gender identity. Uh, recently, uh, questions of racial identity are surfacing, just surfacing and resurfacing. Identity is a big question that people are wrestling with these days and that in fact our culture is wrestling with identity and in Mark chapter 12 we encounter a text that is about identity really about our core identity as worshipers of God as disciples of Jesus Christ enter in Mark 12 the Pharisees and the Sadducees they were the leading religious groups of that day in Israel, and they were, they were constantly fighting over questions of identity for God's people. Now, regular folks paid attention to them. Why? Because they were leaders. Um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees occupied the seats of the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would be sitting in your Saturday Shabbat service at the synagogue. They would be sitting in the seats of honor. At your feasts and your banquets, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the folks who were put in the, in the VIP sections. They were important people. They sounded important. They looked important. And they had the leadership roles there in that society, they had impressive academic credentials and all of this stuff. And so when they, when they spoke, people really paid attention. Now in Mark chapter 12, Jesus finds himself in the middle of one of their favorite ongoing debates. They had lots of debates. But this one was their, their ongoing debate between Sadducees and Pharisees over the resurrection, over the question of life after death. The Pharisees said, yes, there will be a resurrection. The Sadducees said, no, there will be no resurrection. There will be no life beyond the grave. And Jesus is caught in the middle as the Sadducees ask a very pointed question to Jesus about one of their favorite arguments. It was a real, complicated, legal puzzler 
pay attention. This is all in Mark chapter 12. If you want to go back and read this later. But, but here it was in a nutshell. It's as simple as I can make it. Suppose a man dies and is survived by his widow. Now, in this hypothetical case, they, were, they did not have children together. So under the law, it would fall upon this deceased, his brother, to marry her and to attempt to have children with her. So enter brother number two. He marries that widow. They try to have kids. He also dies before she is able to conceive. Now the responsibility goes to, <laughs> goes to brother number three. He dies, no kids. Four, he dies, no kids. Five, it goes all the way through seven brothers, all right? Now, here's the Sadducees' point. Here's their, here's their kicker. So, Pharisees, if there really is a resurrection... When she and all of those brothers, all of those husbands get to heaven, which one of those brothers will be her husband? Checkmate. The Pharisees never could seem to come up with a good answer to that one, so score one for the Sadducees. And these groups constantly argued about just these sorts of silly legal puzzlers. Now, they wanted to get Jesus to weigh in on this one. And let's not forget, Jesus is the only one there who has personal experience of actually living in heaven, his address before he moved here to earth. And Jesus affirms the reality of the resurrection. Yes, we will all have a life after death until we face judgment, right? But he tells the Pharisees two things in verse 24. He tells them, a, Sadducees, A, you don't know the Scriptures. You need to study the Scriptures because he shares with them, it's in there, the resurrection is in there. And B, he says, you don't know the power of God. Think about those two things. Knowing the Scriptures and knowing the power of God. Now, the story of the woman with the seven husbands, frankly, it sounds kind of silly to me, and that's because it was. But it was precisely the kind of legal puzzler that they were constantly posing to each other in these religious debates of the day. Now, there was plenty of biblical fodder for these arguments because the rabbis had gotten together and they had added up all of the commandments in the Old Testament and they had come up with a very specific number. There were 600 and 13 commandments in the Old Testament. So you can imagine lots of room for debating these 613 commandments and endless, exponentially more topics for debate when you think about the interaction, the play between these commandments uh, with each other. Now, people paid attention to these guys, and regular folks got confused listening to them, and so Jesus has a word for the regular folks. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, beware, verse 38, beware of these teachers of religious law. Quit paying so much attention to these teachers of the religious law. Now, when it came to these religious leaders, Jesus saw just how wrapped up in their debates 
and how wrapped up in their own personal piety these guys got. Uh, however, in chapter 12, there was one scribe, there was one religious scholar who impressed Jesus and who asked a very good question and made some very good remarks. So we'll pick it up in verses 28 to 34. One of the scribes came up and heard them <laughs> disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, had answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the what? Is the most important of all. Of these 613, which matters the most? Jesus answered, the most important is the Shema, as the Hebrews knew it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said there is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus was impressed, right? And Jesus saw that he had answered wisely. Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions like that. So that two, 2015 word of the year, identity. As a follower of Christ, my identity has to do with two things. It has to do with loving God. It has to do with loving my neighbor. Or as we say in our vision here at Preston Crest, passion for God and compassion for people. So the final word, this is on your outline this morning, if you would write this in, the final word on Christian identity is love. Jesus could not have been more clear. Now, from the text here, we do see several things about love that we need to consider. What does this mean? Because this word, let's face it, it gets thrown around all the time in our culture. I'm sure it did in their culture as well. The first thing it means is priority right when it comes to love it's the priority now this is on your outline there are loads of commands and teachings and principles and precepts in the Bible but they are not all of equal importance they are not all of equal importance now let's put this verse up verse 31 Read this with me, if you will. This is Jesus talking. Read this with me. No other commandment is greater than these. Let's do that again. No other commandment is greater than these. We need to know this because Jesus says this is at the top of the pile. All right? Everything else depends on these two commandments here. Nothing is greater than love. Right? Uh, now, it may sound good. It may sound smart, it may sound biblical, 
It may even sound holy to say, hey, wait, the Bible is God's word. It's all God's word, so everything is of supreme importance in the Bible. That may sound good and holy and biblical. It's wrong. It is contradicted by Scripture, and that kind of philosophy of interpreting the Scripture actually corrupts Scripture. Jesus says it's not all of equal importance, right? Love is the most important. Now, to flatten them all out and say that they all matter the same, they all matter of extreme importance, you know, 11 on the dial of importance is to demean the sacred text because love, Jesus says, it stands above all others. And in fact, when Matthew uh, relates this text, Jesus says through Matthew that all of the other stuff hangs on these two, hangs on loving God. And, you know, as I was reading that th this this week, I was thinking, wow, I am so glad uh, that we don't have any debates like these, right? Like the, like the Sadducees and like the Pharisees did. Speaking of words, there's a word for what I just did there. It's sarcasm, okay? Because we do, right? And I don't care what tribe you... You may be a Church of Christ person. You may have grown up in the Baptist Church or something, but I have a feeling all of our tribes have their little arguments. I know ours because I was raised in ours, and I have actually heard people debate on more than one occasion whether the letter C in church on the Church of Christ van should be capitalized or not. Anybody heard that one before? Yeah, some of you raising your hands. I have heard people debate whether or not it is biblical for a church building to have a kitchen or have Bible classes or have basically anything. We've argued about basically everything, I think, okay? I have heard good, well-meaning people argue over whether Christians that use instrumental, instrumental music in their worship, whether they're going to hell or not. I bet you've heard some of that too. Well, we argue about a lot of different things, and this is not to say that, that you can't open the Bible and find verses one way or the other weighing in on these different things. It is to say, why do we spend so much time on minutia, as Alexander Pope once said, I love this, this poet, he said, what mighty contests arise from trivial things? What, my, I, I, it, what really gets people's blood boiling seems to involve this kind of trivial stuff, it seems like, in churches. Now, you know, Jesus once said to his people, Let's see if you can finish this one for me. They will know you by your... Yeah. They will know your mind by your stance on a particular thing? No. By your correct positions on a wide range of doctrine? No. They will know you are mine by your love. And that's the priority. That matters far more than all of the other stuff. Even, we saw it there in the text if you were paying attention, even more than some worship matters that get debated, right? Verse 33, love is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices, what? Required in the law. 
Jesus is affirming this in this text. When this scribe says this, Jesus says, Bingo! You're so close to the kingdom. Love is more important. More important than worship procedures, more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices, which, by the way, he says are, yeah, required by the law. Now, Paul said the same thing, of course. Jesus said, Paul said in writing to the Corinthians, some things about the importance of love as well. I'll just, I picked a couple of these out this morning. One of them would be in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Listen to what Paul said. He said, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Let's put that up if you would. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And read this one with me, okay? And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is is love. Paul says in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, let love be your highest goal. Okay? Let that matter the most. Let that be what you're working for more than anything else, your highest goal. The greatest, he says. The highest. The goal. And if I may, it is your God-given identity. So there's that priority that it has. And then that relationship between me and God, let's write down this word praise. It is a life of worship, of praise, of offering all that I am, heart, soul, strength, mind, all that I am to God. And verse 30, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So praise, I will make loving, honoring, and serving God, this is on your outline, the theme of my entire life. Okay? The way that I honor, the way that I respect, the way that I treat other people, the Bible tells us is actually an overflow of the way God has loved me. Right? It's a spilling over of the love that I have received from my Father. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. You might want to jot this down. This is the source, all right? 1 John 4, 19. We love because He first loved us. We love because we're really good people. No. We love because it comes so natural to us. No, we love because He loved us. He has filled us up with His love, and that's huge. You've got to get that down. I mean, we live in a culture that talks about love all the time. I, can, I think you could easily say we put, as a culture in America, we put love on a pedestal. We write top 40 songs about it. We write poems about it. We make Netflix shows about it, movies about it. We talk about love all the time. However, our culture categorically fails to actually translate that into the way that we treat each other. We talk about it. We give it lip service. We just don't do it. Like the world falls short on loving people who are different. The world falls short on loving people 
who have a different faith, on loving people who have a different political orientation, on loving people, you name it, right? A different race, different whatever. And to really expose for me just how far short our culture falls in terms of actually loving people, we can't even pull off loving the one singular person that you get to handpick and choose and go before the altar and swear before witnesses, okay, this person I'm going to love for sure, right? This one, yeah, now this one I'm going to love until death do us part, right? I mean, that one person that you actually go to the county courthouse and you get a license to love and say, this one is for real. We don't even do a good job at that, right? I mean, in, in our culture, marriage is a mess. It's a complete mess. So it starts with God, the Scripture tells us. It's not our own ingenuity. It's not our own strength. It's not our own creativity. It's because He first loved us. That's why we love. The one who loved us sacrificially, the one who loved us unconditionally, the one who went to the cross for you to save you, He's the source for the way we love and treat each other. And only through Christ can the cruel cycles of culture be broken. And can we really be set free to love people? Now, a big part of this, this is the third and final bullet point this morning, a big part of this has to do with people, right? We've talked about the priority that not everything is equal in the Bible, right? Love is the most important. We've talked about praise, about the centrality of that relationship, how everything flows from my relationship with God. We've got to talk about people, though. And this is where the translation gets difficult for us because people have problems. We have problems, right? So Jesus says in, in verse 31 there in chapter 12, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, my fear here is you have heard these words so many times, from the time you were four years old till the time you're 94. However, you have heard this so many times, we can kind of get almost numb to this. You're like, yeah, yeah. No, your Lord, all right? The one who died for you, the one that we claim as Lord and Savior, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's a teaser for something that we're going to be exploring together over months and maybe coming years. A while back, the elders of this church got a vision. I believe the Holy Spirit gave them this, this vision to begin wrestling with, to begin talking about, to begin praying about that idea of being a neighbor. How simple is that? Love your neighbor. And we tend to think, right? We tend to think about uh, we're going to do good for people over in West Africa. We're going we're gonna to send some money or some missionaries over to Australia or down to South America. That stuff is great, by the way. As a former missionary, yes, love that stuff. But what about what Jesus just said? What about loving your neighbor? Yes, your actual neighbor. 
the one who lives next door to you, the one who lives across the street from you. And the elders have been challenging us, and they've been praying and talking with the staff about this, and we're just imagining what would it be like to be a, here's a new word for you, neighboring church. A church that's full of members who are the best neighbors that their neighbors have ever had. What would that look like? And it starts with some conviction, I think, and I won't talk much more about this, just trying to give you a little teaser, but it starts with a conviction. Like Charlie Johnston just asked, you know, he said, Gordon, so you love your neighbors? I was like, yeah, of course I love my neighbors. And he said, how about naming them? And I knew the name of one of my neighbors. It wasn't just to make me feel bad, it was to make a point how can I love people without getting to know them a little bit? How about learning their names? How about learning the, the struggles that their child with Down syndrome has? How about learning about his unemployment? How about learning about, I mean, how about getting to know them? And so just this idea, we'll be teasing this, we'll be talking about this, and we'll be called by the Spirit to, to think about that command, love your neighbor, becoming really good at loving our neighbors uh, coming up. So... The well-intentioned discussions and debates of believers in Mark chapter 12, and even today, they remind me of the story of U.S. Olympian Matt Emmons. Matt Emmons, his sport was the three-position shooting event, and he was on the U.S. Olympic team that went to Athens, Greece back in 2004. And Matt Emmons did really well. In fact, he did so well, so precise with his shooting that when he got to the finals of the Athens Olympics, he had a virtually insurmountable lead. In fact, this is true. All he had to do in the finals was just hit the target. Anywhere. Bullseye didn't matter. No, anywhere on the piece of paper. And he was the gold medalist. So Matt Emmons stepped into lane one, sighted the target, concentrated on his breathing, slowly squeezed the trigger, pop, bullseye. Problem. The target that he hit was actually in a different lane. He bullseyed the wrong target, and it cost him the gold medal. What happens if you're right? What happens if you're right about everything? But it turns out you've been aiming at the wrong target. What if you're right about worship procedures and worship practices and you have right answers on Bible questions from A to Z? What if you're right but you have been aiming at the wrong target? Everything, according to Jesus Christ, comes down to how you do at loving. That's how you're going to be scored 
Did you love God? Did you love your neighbor as yourself? And it is a beautiful, beautiful identity because think about it. It doesn't matter. You can do this. You can love God and you can love your neighbor whether you are rich or whether you are poor. Whether you're a plumber, whether you're a professor. Whether you're black, whether you're white. You can do this. Anyone can learn to love God and to love their neighbor. And the story of Jesus, of course, Wow, the greatest love story ever told. John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. Hmm. Will you give your life to Christ today? Will you call on His name? Surrender to Him. Be baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And begin living in this new identity. Pointing your life at this beautiful target. Maybe you just need prayers this morning. We would love to help you by praying over you, by listening to you. However you need to respond, do that as we stand together and as we worship.